Let's pray before we look at this uh, passage of Scripture. Our great God, we, um, we come to a passage that in many ways feels distant to us, tax collectors and fishermen and calls to follow and dropping everything. So I pray that in this ancient story, though, that we would see ourselves, but above all else, we would see you calling to us to the great adventure that is giving our life to the service and love and worship of you and your people. Be with us, Lord, in the teaching of your scripture. In Christ's name, amen. Well, ever since I read the first review, uh, probably in the summer, I have wanted to read uh, Walter Isaacson's new biography of Elon Musk. If you don't know Walter Isaacson, uh, he has made a name for himself. He was the uh, editor of Time Magazine for many years, and then he has kind of made his late in life uh, vocation, his calling to write biographies of geniuses. Uh, He wrote a biography of Benjamin Franklin, of Leonardo da Vinci, of Albert Einstein, maybe most famously of Steve Jobs. And so for two years, Walter Isaacson shadowed Elon Musk. I was like, I got to read this book. So I bought it this week. I haven't finished it, but I've started it. Because for two years, Walter Isaacson, this person who has observed many geniuses, follows Elon Musk. Now, the story of Elon Musk, if you do not know it, he was bullied rather significantly as a small child, both at school and by his father, with whom he no longer has a relationship. Elon Musk is only 52 years old. He's 52 years old. Among other things, you may know all of this, he helped to found PayPal. He brought electric cars into the mainstream. Tesla now sells over a million models a year. Many of you drove to church today in a Tesla. I mean, who thought that the big three could be challenged like this? In 2022, his space, I think he's got automotive, he's also got space. In 2022, his SpaceX company launched 31 rockets into orbit. He has a stated and public goal. He put himself on the record, we want to send a person to Mars. (laughs) He's more ambitious than NASA. His satellite internet company, Starlink, if you've read the reports lately, it has had a role in the war in Ukraine. And you've probably heard that he bought and took Twitter private, you know, one of the major news sources of our world. As an aside, he's the richest person in the world. He's worth roughly $250 billion, give or take a couple of billion every day. He has children by multiple women. Elon Musk, at least for me, is must-watch TV. I'm just fascinated by Elon Musk. He's basically my age. Elon Musk, he keeps changing adventures. I mean, it seems like, I mean, from space to satellites to Twitter, to cars. I mean, where, I, he's got a boring company. But it's interesting to me. There's this sense when you read about or, or think about Elon Musk that he cannot find an all-absorbing quest, something big enough to keep his attention, something big enough to keep his interest, something to keep him satisfied. One of the early quotes in the book is he said, I've got to get out of this crisis mode. I've lived in it all my life. I keep looking for things and not being satisfied. Because as much as I respect and am intrigued by Elon Musk, I actually kind of feel sorry for him. He can't find something big enough. He can't find a calling. He still hasn't found what he's looking for. Now, no one in this room will match his influence. No one in this room or anyone I know will even ever come close. But I want to suggest that we are more like him than we realize. We are more like him. We're casting about for something to give ourselves to, something big enough something grand enough that both satisfies us and stimulates us. And I'm thinking especially of students today, both high school students and college students, because you, like all of us, all of us, I I like to think of us, we're we're so often, especially on the North Shore and especially as students, we are like ducks swimming. 
Okay, have you ever been to an aquarium and seen a duck where you can see below the waterline? Above the waterline, a duck is, you know, the feathers are non-ruffled, the head is cocked back, you know, everything looks great. But if you look below the waterline, what do you see? Paddling furiously, heading in every direction. There's no rhyme or that, like a duck just like going every direction, right? Always turning, always padding. Above the waterline, everything's calm, cool, and collected. But like so many of us, below the waterline, when you can't see, we're paddling furiously, trying to keep up, trying to find something. We've been looking at the Gospel of Luke in the fall, preach the good news. Two weeks ago, we see Jesus enact the good news with the miracles, the mighty works. Today, we see Jesus calling people to the good news, asking them to enter the story. Because Jesus is telling a story about the world. He's telling a story about the good news. He's telling a story about reality. Jesus is telling a story about you and about me. But the thing about this story is it's a story that invites us to participate. It invites us to enter the play. This is a plot. This is a plot looking for characters. Now, many of you would know that for six years I lived in Los Angeles, where my wife is from. That's where I met Allison. And Los Angeles, Hollywood, is a city that turns on stories. And I have some interesting experiences from those years, surreal things, just parties you'd go to. But one of the more surreal things I did while living in L.A., Alice and I did this together. We went to show, saw a play, a live-action play called Point Break Live. Now, you remember the movie Point Break? It's very forgettable. Uh, it's very bad, actually. But Point Break, Point Break is a 1991 film starring Keanu Reeves, Gary Bussey, and a couple others. It's a crime action surf movie. It's almost designed to be bad, okay? <laughs> but Point Break Live is a play. It's a live action play that really is designed to make fun of the movie. But you don't go to Point Break Live to watch a play. You go to Point Break Live to experience something. You know something's different about this play when you walk in the door and the first thing they do is they hand you a raincoat, <laughs> literally. They hand you a raincoat. You're going to get wet, Okay? But the premise of the whole show of Point Break Live is this. The name, the star of the movie is Keanu Reeves. And what the actors on stage say is that Keanu Reeves is the most generous actor of his generation because he convinces all of the rest of us that we too can act. He's so bad that we too can be Hollywood actors. And then Point Break Live is about bringing you and me from the audience onto the stage to, uh, to audition for the role of Johnny Utah. So just literally calling you up on stage and acting you to act, and they're going to choose one person at the end of the show who gets to be Johnny Utah, right? You don't have to be a good actor, they're saying. But Point Break Live is what? It is a play looking for actors. And the good news that Jesus brings is similarly, although much more substantially, like that. The gospel of Jesus is a play, it is a story, and it is looking for actors, looking for people to come into the story. And in this story, Jesus calls four men, two in particular, and he says, follow me, enter into my story. And this story is bigger than anything Elon Musk has attempted. It's a story that is big enough that you can fit your life into. It is a story that is both stimulating and satisfying. It is something that can give you both rest and give you something to do. It can fill you up, something to give yourself fully to. Following Jesus is the great adventure. And this is the story of Jesus calling to these four, but also to you and to me. So I want us to see three things today. 
First and most briefly, where Jesus calls us. Secondly, who Jesus calls. And then third and finally, what he calls us to. First, where Jesus calls us. Now, this is the shortest point. I probably could leave this off, but I think it's actually interesting. Chapter 5, verse 1. Jesus is preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, but the crowd is a bit much. So Jesus commandeers one of the boats. Uh, He uses the boat as a stage and a pulpit. He pushes back from the shore and he preaches. Uh, Notice in verse 2, though, that while he's doing this, these fishermen are washing their nets. We'll come back to that. They're washing their nets. Pretty prosaic activity. After his sermon, Jesus tells the boat's owner, a man named Simon, who is Simon Peter, the man we know in the Bible as Peter, if you're familiar with the New Testament. And he says to Peter, push out into the deep. Push out into the deep and try catching fish there. That's a little weird, if you're an experienced fisherman, to take fishing advice from a carpenter and a rabbi. It'd be a little bit like me telling some of you who are in finance how to restructure your company's debt and equity and all this. I have no idea. I don't even know what I just said. (laughs) But this is Jesus. So even as a carpenter and a rabbi, he knows something about fishing. Verses 6 and 7, they catch so many fish that not only their nets are breaking, their boats are breaking. Okay? Now pause. Time out. That's the story of Simon. Let's look now at the story of uh, Levi. Verse 27, okay? Now we're going to a different calling story. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Now I wonder if you notice, besides saying follow me to these two, what do these two stories have in common? They're both at the workplace, Jesus shows up in their workplace at the fishing dock in the tax booth. And I don't think that's coincidental. Because I think so often we want to separate our spiritual life from our work life, but not Jesus. It's significant. Jesus, we know from earlier in chapter 4 that Jesus has been interacting for sure with Simon and perhaps with Levi. He's been interacting with him in homes and in synagogues. But he doesn't call Peter. He doesn't call him in the synagogue. He doesn't call him in church. He approaches him at his workplace. The same thing with Levi. Now, why is that? Well, I think, first of all, it's because he's asking them to change jobs, okay? Uh, He's asking them to change jobs. But more fundamentally, to follow Jesus is to have a radical shift in how you think about yourself. And the primary ways that Jesus comes to us are in our identity and in our relationships, And for so many of us, our identity is tied up in our work. And because our identity is tied up in our work, Jesus meets us there. Jesus meets us there. I mean, think about when you're just out and about and you meet somebody for the first time. I'm willing to bet within five minutes of conversation, if not within one minute, you ask the question or it's asked of you, what do you do for a living? If I were to ask each of you to list five things about yourself, most of you, uh, if not all of you, work would be listed. And that is not bad. God has created us to work. He loves you at your job. Some of you are like, well, I'm retired, uh, or I'm a stay-at-home parent, which is the biggest working job there is. But I would say that identity is especially important to think about if you're a retired or a stay-at-home parent. As someone who used to have a job, who used to leave the home, who now works at home. Those are huge identity issues. Jesus cares about you in your workplace. He wants to relate. He wants you to do well in work. He wants to meet you there. And he's also calling to you in your workplace. Because so many of the things that you feel, so many of the things you experience in life have to do with your work and your identity. Don't mute the voice of Jesus 
in the workplace. But maybe more important than where he calls us is who he calls, what type of person Jesus calls secondly. And again, we see a similarity. Let's start this time with Levi, the second story. Verse 27 tells us he is a tax collector. If you've been around churches, you've heard stories about tax collectors. Uh, They were oftentimes Jewish people who had aligned themselves with the hated and occupying Romans to collect taxes for them. They were hated. Uh, They were considered both traitors and thieves. Traitors because they were allied with the Romans. Thieves because the Romans would basically say take 10%. They would take 15% and skim the top. The Romans didn't care. Tax collectors were hated. Uh, They were ostracized. To be a tax collector, you were disqualified as a judge. You could not be a witness in court. You were excommunicated from your local synagogue, the local worshiping body. To be a tax collector was to be a disgrace to your family. And so Jesus goes right up to Levi, who his name is Matthew as well. We know him as Matthew as well. He goes right up to Levi and says, this outsider, and says, follow me. And then, while having dinner with Levi and his friends, his outcast traitor friends, the religious leaders are offended. Verse 30. So imagine Jesus is having dinner with all these tax collectors who they think are not just, you know, Dante, I think traitor is like the worst level of hell, with traitors and thieves. And the religious leader, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answers, verse 31, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Okay, let that linger in your mind. I have not called to come the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let that linger and let's look back at Simon, the first part of the chapter. After this miraculous catch of fish, Simon literally falls down at his feet. And what does Simon Peter say to Jesus? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. What's the similarity between Peter, between Simon, and Levi? They are sinners, and they realize it. They know they are broken. And the first thing to notice about this is that the gospel, the good news, is for sinners. But more importantly, the gospel is only It is only for sinners. It is only for people who recognize they are broken. Only, only for sinners. You see, when Jesus has been around Peter for a while now. We know from chapter 4 he's been around him. But it's when Peter confesses that he is a sinner, it's at that moment that Jesus looks at him and says, this is the guy I can work with. You come follow me. You see, by his actions and his teaching, Jesus is showing that the realization that we are broken, that we are sinners, is essential to spiritual growth. It is essential to spiritual flourishing, and it's also essential to usefulness in telling other people about Jesus. You hear that? His actions and teachings, Jesus is saying that realizing that you are broken is essential to spiritual flourishing and to spiritual usefulness. confession We call this realization a confession of sin. Confessing that we are broken, that we are unworthy, and it is powerful. You may have heard, you read about it, it was all over the news, both secular and Christian news. Earlier this year, there was a revival that broke out at Asbury College in Kentucky. Asbury College in Kentucky. Uh, people came from all over the world. I mean, even the New York Times picked up this story. Now, what is a revival? A revival is a time, it's a rare and powerful moment when there's a deep sense of God's presence. Massive numbers of people became Christians. The worship services lasted around the clock for weeks on end. There was a deep sense that God was present in Asbury for those weeks. A revival. I wonder if you know 
how the revival at Asbury got started. The preacher that morning in an ordinary chapel service preached on Romans 12. The big theme of Romans 12 is loving one another. And at the end of the sermon, it's not, I listened to part of the sermon, it's not that remarkable. At the end of the sermon, he just said, he asked the students to take a few moments of silence and to think about the ways they have failed to love one another. That's how the, not a great sermon, I'm telling you. Um, And he just said, I just want you to sit here and think for a few minutes about ways you failed to love one another. And he walked off the stage. And in that silence, people started to stand up and confess their sins. Confess the ways that they had not loved one another. And that was the beginning of revival. That's how it happened. Why? Why is that? Why is confession of sin so powerful? A lot of reasons. One, it's honest. It's vulnerable. It gets you away from self-protection, from justifying yourself. It's radically liberating. I mean, I, we gotta, I keep on thinking, we've got to find a way for this community to confess its sins publicly. I think it, it could do amazing things. But the main thing, above all else, why confession is so powerful, because like Peter, Peter doesn't just confess his sins in a corner. He does, what does he do? He goes and he falls down at Jesus' feet. His sin doesn't drive him away from Jesus. His sin drives him to Jesus. He is literally in Jesus' face when he confesses his sin. Now, if you've been around this church for any amount of time, you know that at least once a quarter, if not once a month, I quote Jack Miller saying, Jack Miller famously said, you are more wicked than you ever dared imagine, and you are simultaneously more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. I want to add something to that this morning. Not just that you're more wicked than you ever dared imagine, more love than you ever dared hope. The more and more you realize your wickedness, the more and more you realize your brokenness, your sin, the more and more you will turn to Jesus and realize your acceptance. The more you will grow, the more you will flourish, the more you will move into intimacy with Christ and telling others of God's love. The more you realize the brokenness of your own heart. Think about your own marriage. If you have a healthy marriage, some of the greatest moments of intimacy follow what? A confession of sin. Yes, I hurt you. I'm so sorry. Intimacy follows confession. The clearest example, I had an example from a friend of mine, but the clearest example, frankly, is the Apostle Peter himself. And I actually owe this insight to Andrew Barber. Because this is not the only story of Peter and an extraordinary catch of fish. Think about this. This is Luke chapter 5. At this point, Peter has not personally sinned against Jesus in ways that we know. Luke chapter 5, Peter is not personally sinned against Jesus in ways that we know. But three years later, at the end of Jesus' life, Peter denies Jesus three times. Peter denies Jesus three times. And then Jesus is crucified, and then he's resurrected. Peter doesn't know what to do with himself. He can't find Jesus. So what does he do? He goes fishing again. And again, they catch nothing. Again, this is after the resurrection. But as they're coming back to shore, as Peter is coming back to shore, there's a stranger that they can't see on the shore. This is John 21. And the stranger on the shore says to them, try the other side of the boat. And they do, and they get a miraculous catch of fish again. And Peter realizes, I've seen this story before. And he remembers Luke 5. He remembers, and he realizes the person on the shore saying this to me is Jesus himself. And it's in that moment when he really has sinned against Jesus. What is Peter's instinct? He's denied him three times. Worst thing possible. What is his instinct? He takes off his outer cloak and he jumps in the water and swims to Jesus. 
Because now he sees his sin even more clearly because he knows three times he's denied Jesus. And he throws himself at Jesus. You see, the great thing about confession of sin is not about you. (laughs) It's about the one that we look to for the forgiveness of sins. Peter knows deep in his bones that God will love him even when he denies him. So he cast himself, falling into the water, failing. I love Peter. Peter always fails forward. Stop trying to pay the debt. Stop trying to clean yourself up. Confess your sins and find life. Don't trust Jesus at his word. I have not come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners. So whatever it is, there's that thing, that dark thing in the back of your mind that nobody knows about, your spout, nobody knows about it. Confess it. Find someone to tell it to. Tell it to Jesus himself. So we've seen where Jesus meets us, also who he calls. He calls sinners. But the fast thing is, what does he call us to? Jesus calls to these men, and they basically all respond the same way. Chapter, verse 11 and verse 28 basically say the same thing. They left everything and followed him. I think it's worth naming the cost for just a moment. What did they leave? They left their families. They left their social networks. They left their money, their possessions. They, I mean, Peter literally is leaving on the most successful day of his vocational life. He just got the big bonus, right? He just got the promotion. And he leaves all those fish and he walks away, right? Um, their lives, to the best of our knowledge, I mean, the only person that we know that doesn't die a violent death in this story is John, all with, who, who dies in exile. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a person, he bids him come and die. And these men have some sense of this. But why? What compels them? What compels them? Stay with me for just a second. I think this is beautiful. Now remember, this is the Gospel of Luke, and he's writing 30 years after these events. And Luke is a theologian, and Luke is a stylist. So note the details of the scene. Go back with me to the first part of chapter 5. Verse 2, what are they doing? They're washing their nets. Very prosaic, very normal. They're washing their nets. And then think intentionally about Jesus' words in verse 4. He says, put out into the deep. Put out into the deep. Jesus' words to Simon or to us, call us into deep water, into the depths, into deep life. And to further make this point, this call to the disciples at the end of the depths, look at the end of verse 10. What does Jesus say to Peter? Do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. Jesus is inviting Simon from a life of catching smelly fish to engaging human beings. This guy, Simon, Simon Peter, his name is changed to Peter later, just a few, next chapter actually, or two chapters from now. Several years, about a year from this time, or three years from now, I should say, the Apostle Peter will preach the greatest sermon in the history of the church, Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. He really is a fisher of men that day. Thousands become Christians because of Peter's preaching just a few years later than this. You see, Jesus is calling Peter from catching fish to engaging human lives. I hope you've seen from our own Major Huffman, one of our elders, the army has brought back that old slogan, be all you can be. Major Huffman, right here, he did that. He's the one who led that, he's leading that campaign. I'm so proud of him. But Jesus calls us not to just be all we can be. He calls us to be all he can make us to be. Peter thought this catch of fish was amazing. He had no idea what Jesus' plans were for him. 
I mean, think about how profoundly these people's lives were changed. They were called as simple fishermen and crooked tax collectors. They attended to their duties. They got up early. They cleaned their nets. They washed their nets. They swapped fishing stories. In short, they led small lives. They were committed to small things. But when they die to themselves and start following Jesus, what happens to them? The Apostle John goes on to become the Bishop of Ephesus. He writes some of the most beautiful Greek literature of the first century. Peter goes to Rome, becomes the Bishop of Rome. James becomes the second Christian martyr. And Matthew, Levi, writes the gospel that is the beginning of the most published book in history, the New Testament. He was a tax collector. As Kent Hughes says, these men, their hearts were enlarged to take in the whole world. Their minds, once committed to the smallest interests, now overflow with deep thoughts. They become thinkers, sociologists, psychologists, and strategists, all because of the good news of Jesus. Following Jesus eliminates the trivial, and it expands our hearts. There is nothing that will make you grow more than following Jesus. You see, the call to follow Jesus is the most stimulating and at the same time the most satisfying. It both gives you rest and gives you purpose and engages you. Don't waste your life paddling around a pond in a circle. So wherever you are today, this is not a call to leave your profession necessarily, but this is a call to lay aside the nets, to lay aside your tax, your, your tax practice, and to push out into the deep waters without fear, knowing that Jesus comes to give life and adventure and purpose and meaning and rest. You can be free. That is the story of these men. They were bound and they became free. It is the good news. It is the call of the gospel. And Jesus is inviting you to participate. Would you pray with me? I got to pray that all of us would hear your voice calling to us for the first time, for the thousandth time, calling us to follow you, to die to ourselves, and find that in doing so, we find life, the fullness of life. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us this call. Amen.